Greetings, and welcome to the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. I'm Phyllis Hollis, your host. As an extension of my Instagram page, Cerebral Women, this podcast offers insights into the visual art world. I interview artists, mainly artists of color and female artists, who will freely articulate what inspires their creativity. In addition, you'll hear interesting perspectives from dedicated art professionals who work with artists and the art institutions that feature them. I'm confident that collectively, these individuals will indeed stimulate your mind as they do our eyes. Please know these interviews are conducted in my Manhattan apartment, so please forgive the background sounds of city life. Welcome to the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. In this episode, I feature Los Angeles-based painter Larry Pittman. Over the years, he has developed a unique visual aesthetic that has established him as one of the most significant painters of his generation. Larry's signature, densely layered painting style includes a lexicon of signs and symbols such as bells, eggs, animals, and ropes, a compilation of varied painting techniques, and a clear homage to the handmade craft and the decorative His early works were informed by the socio-political struggle resulting from the peak of the AIDS epidemic, racial discord, and LGBTQ plus civil rights struggles that defined the last two decades of the 20th century. His later paintings evince a shift in focus toward interior spaces, including domestic and psychological subjects. Since 1996, he has had several solo exhibitions nationally and internationally. His most recent work has been organized at Lehman Maupin, New York City, in the early fall of 2023, Museo Humex in Mexico City in 2022, and the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles in 2019, to name a very few. Select group exhibitions featuring Larry's works include Schistefoss Museum in Norway, Amore Pacific Museum of Art in Seoul, South Korea, The Broad, the Museum of Contemporary Art in Chicago, ICA in Boston, MoMA, SF MoMA, the Whitney, the Bronx Museum of the Arts, to name a few. He has participated in multiple biennial exhibitions, including Documenta X in Kassel, Germany, and four Whitney biennials. Larry's work is in numerous public and private collections, including the Akron Museum of Art, Amore Pacific Museum of Art, the Museum of Contemporary Art, Monterey, Mexico, MoMA, the Peter Norton Family Foundation, the RISD Museum, to name just a few. Enjoy this episode featuring Larry Pittman and visit CerebralWomen.com for his expanded bio. Larry, thank you so much for joining me. I appreciate your time. Really my pleasure. We'll begin with, when did you discover your artistic passion? I've always drawn since I was very young and painted and made self-starting projects. I would build things, paint things, make things. But it was maybe around 12, maybe 12 or 13, that I realized that I was an artist and that that's actually what I wanted to concentrate on and and focus on and, and hopefully make a light about. How would you define your practice? I went to... Uh, CalArts in the 70s, so uh, California Institute of the Arts. So there was some painting, but not that much painting was going on. It was really more conceptual art, as it was called or still is. But 
I wanted to make paintings. So I think that I tried to figure out how it was to make a convincing painting. How, how could I make a convincing painting, an attractive visual painting, a painting that would grab attention, pull somebody in, have a dialogue with them through the work. So I had to kind of rethink what a painting might look like or what a painting could do at a time when it wasn't very popular to make paintings. So I think that was the the impetus of it. In other words, it, I, I wanted to bring it back into the arena of being an object that produces conversation and dialogue as opposed to just uh, self-expression. And are there concepts or thoughts that connect your work? Well, I, I think from very, very early on, I... I kind of conflated, or it was this kind of serendipitous moment of trying to rethink the role of painting and what it might look like, but it also coincided with the acknowledgement of who I was as a human being, which was being gay. So I think those two, those two moments were serendipitous and congratulated each other right from the beginning. So therefore, front and forward, I think, the work has always addressed identity, identity through imagery, identity through social politics, which is different from other type of politics, um, gender identity, sexuality identity, from the very, very, very beginning, from the very start. I don't know if I totally had the words to describe it then, but as I look back on it, that was certainly what I was up to, and that is what I still I'm up to today. How did your art professors at Cal Arts impact your work? They were wonderful. I had Elizabeth Murray, Via Selman, Miriam Shapiro, Paul Brock, another great mentor and extremely influential was John Baldessari, who was on my graduate committee as well. You know, it was a very non-intrusive education. I think that they saw that I was really self-motivated, driven, and I wanted to make what I wanted to make. And I think that they were really lovingly just watching me do it. I mean, they would interfere periodically and ask difficult questions or perplexing questions, or they would register being perplexed about the work. But it was really a dialogue, and that's the kind of, it was a a very nurturing experience for me. So I look back on those formative years and finishing my BFA and getting my MFA at CalArts with an incredible amount of appreciation. I think that they they realized that maybe I was onto something. I mean, like any good professor would view a student who would reveal to the professor that they're really onto something for themselves and their own journey. So that's kind of how I approached it. And it was really wonderfully reciprocated by my professors at CalArts. How has your technique developed or changed over the years? I think I've always been a maximalist. <laughs> by nature, I I don't think through reduction, but I the vehicle through which I work out problems and clarify problems or clarify ideas or clarify my con conjectural thinking is through addition and not subtraction. So I've always layered, let's say, and the work's always been about layering 
about a type of accelerated, very excitable imagery. It's not about calm or reductiveness. I guess that technique of layering and juxtaposing has been there since I was very young and continues to this day. I don't see that type of layering or maximalism as a cacophonous language. I, for me, it's a language to clarify and ironically to simplify. Were you ever influenced by other artists? Oh, absolutely. I think I think if an artist say they weren't influenced by other artists, they're being truthful. <laughs> I mean, especially if, if you're a painter, there's this incredible brand history of centuries of painting and, uh, you know, how could you not be either inspired or actually get ideas from that that history? It's, it's not unlike medicine or law. Medicine or law are based on precedent, and that's how you construct, you know, moving forward in medicine and law, and I think art is no different. So I think precedent, meaning its history is really important. I particularly like artists from the 20th century simply because when I was at CalArts, I had a primarily feminist education in art history. And so a lot of the artists that were very influential for me in my practice were people like Sonia Delaunay, who I always saw as an interdisciplinary artist who pulled from design, textile, interior design, painting, collaborations, works on paper, paint, you know, just this incredible range. Also, I was very interested in the kind of personal narrative and idiosyncrasy of Florine Stettheimer and Louise Bourgeois was very important to me. Also, a, an artist who was able to develop imagery and tell a story, uh, not just exclusively a personal story, but a story of relationships, of social development, personal development. So I, I guess actually a lot of the artists that helped formed my practice were due in part to the type of art history I was studying in school and that without coincidence were many female artists of the 20th century. Do you listen to music while you work? No, I can't. I guess what it is, I love music and I listen to it a lot, but I find it so powerfully invasive that it starts curating the atmosphere of the room way too much for me. I think it invades the space in a wonderful way, but not in a wonderful way that makes it conducive for me to work. So for a while, I was listening to the news or talk radio or things like that. NPR, but then that even became intrusive. So now I just pretty, I, I work in silence all day long. So I, I find that the most optimum way of working. So on that note, what does your workplace look and feel like? People always comment when uh, I have visitors over or museum groups or curators or writers or you know, just people visiting the studio to see the work. One of the first things they comment is, is it always this clean? You know, I'm fastidious that way about keeping my studio in order. And it's not that it's about OCD or anything. It's actually, if the studio isn't in order and clean, I just can't think. I just, I, you know, the work uh, requires a, a complex level of attention and the making of the work is 
complex and the, in, the resulting imagery, as you well know, Phyllis, is complex as well. It's very layered. So I need everything around me. That's why I don't play music, and that's why the studio is really orderly and clean. It's just simply setting the stage so that I can fully concentrate and not be distracted. So the studio is always clean, very clean, and very orderly. And when do you know work is finished? That's a question. I mean, I'm always interested in hearing how artists answer that question. You know, I love reading the profiles of what, what artists do in their studios and how they finish a work or don't finish a work or put it aside. I guess for me, I have maybe a built-in sensor that tells me that if I feel the next move that I would make onto the surface of the painting feels redundant, and that's a very powerful feeling I get. If it feels redundant or extraneous or not necessary, I stop. It's just a built-in um, signal that has developed over the years. But part of it is, is that is that last touch, that last impulse, does it feel redundant? And if I'm able to say yes, the painting is done. When do the titles enter the creative process? Well, the titles usually come very early on, if not right at the beginnings, when you're asking, how do I work or how's, how's my um, way of working changed over the years or hasn't it? I think part of how one works is what you learned in school as well. So I always sit down and write a few notes about titles, the scope of the work, uh, how many works will be under that title. I developed the titles very early on, but more specifically, the title of the exhibition is right at the beginning. And that helps me just simply organize the works under that umbrella idea. And part of that has been a result of being very lucky and very privileged to have the opportunities to show consistently for over 40 years. So the act of producing the work and the act of exhibition has been inextricably linked for a long time for me. So it ends up being that I work in groups of paintings or projects of paintings and that it helps me set up the titles of the overall exhibition and in many cases, individual titles as well. So it's kind of like setting up a contract, a loose contract with myself. When we met during Zonamako, I remembered being fascinated by your solo exhibition at Museo Humex. And the entire conversation was in Spanish and I was totally thrown off and disappointed because I couldn't understand. So I've was very curious about your ability to speak so fluently, so well, which led to our discussion and me learning that your mother is from Colombia and you spent many of your childhood developmental years there. Can we talk about that? And can you comment on how being in that culture impacts the work you do today? That's always a question. I love hearing you ask that question because it is extremely important to me in my development as a human being, as a person, as a citizen, but also as an artist. I spoke to my mother in Spanish. That was my, or actually our home language was Spanish. And I spoke to my father in English. And my father spoke to my mother in Spanish. And so it was a complex linguistic development because there are certain ways of expressing yourself that is intrinsic 
to the Spanish language and that there's certain ways of expression and clarification that are at the core of the English language. So I was able to develop two and I realized when I was growing up, I could sense the difference between how I would express myself in English and how I would express myself in Spanish. But I think like always, it's the maternal and I maybe I guess in more traditional homes in which I grew up, the maternal influence is always the strongest. So Spanish dominated my development. And to this day, uh, I speak to my aunts in Spanish. And I think maybe the difference is, is that English is this amazing technical and pragmatic language and actually has maybe some of the, the largest vocabulary of any language. Spanish is, first of all, like a lot of Romance languages, is a gendered language, which is, of course, causing a lot of problems and, and difficulties now that we're trying to rethink gender assignations and conversations and incorporate them into English. But in Spanish, it comes already fully gendered, which is, causes its own problems as well. But they're just nuances in Spanish that are maybe more indulged in than I, I sense or indulge in English. Like, I think metaphoric language is used a lot in daily conversation in Spanish. Whereas if you use too much metaphoric language in English, it starts feeling a bit stilted or maybe even suspicious. It causes some sort of suspicion. I think Spanish somehow can accommodate larger, more poetic leaps of logic, even in a daily conversation. And just what I said, accommodate bigger leaps of logic is still so central to the visual composition in my work. So there are things that I draw from the cultural identities that are produced in Spanish, and then some things that I draw from things that are built in into English. So it's it's a bit of a hybrid for me. And my identity is, a, it's a hybridized identity, and it started in early childhood and home life. Do you feel that Hispanic or Latinx work can be defined? And, and would do you fall into that category? I hope it cannot be defined. There's a serious danger in looking and trying to invest monolithic ideas of a culture. It's dangerous. I think that that's where a lot of stereotypes come out of and misunderstandings, racism, lack of understanding of, of nuances. So I, I, I don't think any category of peoples should not be subjected to a monolithic self-definition. When it comes to Latino identity, and I, I know I still use the old phrase Latino and not Latinx, but I'm in my 70s, so it's hard to change. But I think uh, Latino identity is language-based. It's a, a consortium of racial identities, cultural identities, ethnicities, complex combinations that orbit around a language, which is Spanish. So it's a very malleable and fluid identity. And then within that, that population, if there are artists who draw on that identity base or linguistic base, you see huge, huge 
range of production, art production, you know. So, no, I don't, I don't, wouldn't say it should not be categorized. I don't like it to be categorized or made monolithic. Maybe in short, that's the answer. Um, since I have, I come from a multicultural family, I insist on the simultaneity of those two parts of myself as being central to my identity and not choose one over the other. What are you excited about right now? Excited right now? I guess sometimes in, in such a, a, a low point in our culture, I have something built into me that still is optimistic. You know, it's it's a very contentious and debilitating cultural moment right now, politically. But it what that produces in me is a kind of, I don't know, maybe a naive and strange optimism. I'm also very, you know, I live in a progressive city, and as you do, Phyllis, and uh, I live in a progressive state, California. So, you know, my immediate surroundings are still very hopeful. I come across a lot of really young artists because I taught at UCLA for so many years that I still mentor. And so how could I not remain optimistic and excited about the formation of young practices? Because I go visit their studios, I see what they're working on, they invite me to see their shows once they start showing. And so in a, in a funny way, it's, I'm still excited about that young people want to be artists and, and want to pursue that. And what that does is actually gives me an ongoing context for myself as well. So that's what makes me excited. It's just simply that there are young people who want to be artists and that I'm included in that process. Yes, it's so important for us to be optimistic for them. Totally. <laughs> the world isn't as kind as it was when we were their age. Well, I think America has always been a mean place, but... Maybe in our respective upbringings, we didn't feel it. I don't know. I don't know your upbringing, Phyllis, but it does seem harder for young people. I mean, that maybe as an older person, I can, it feels harder. It feels a bit meaner than it was when I was younger, like you just said. So I, I hold on to that. And I, I just love that because I think it's really hard to be an artist. So when a, a young person says, I want to be an artist, uh, like, wow, that's, truly really amazing. And I always remember when I would say that to my teachers at CalArts, that that's what I wanted to do. They showed that excitement for me as well. So I wanted to pass that on. If you weren't a visual artist or a professor, what other career path do you think you would have chosen? <laughs> uh, I learned pretty quickly that there's not much else I could have done or could do. Maybe I... I learned really early on in a fundamental way is how useless I am in the big picture. I, I think I constructed my usefulness, usefulness as I grew older. But I think if you were to ask that of a lot of artists, you, you might get a, a similar, you've, maybe you've gotten a similar response. I mean, you've interviewed so many artists. You know, I'm sure you've tabulated kind of a majority of answers. I think a lot of artists really can't really do much else. Um, <laughs> let's say I, I would love, I mean, I love architecture. I, I, I love fashion. 
you know, so there are those other things that are creative practices that maybe I could have latched onto, but I'm not a practical thinker and I'm a highly social person, but I'm not, I don't have a communal identity per se. So I was kind of met for the solitary nature of studio life. So when you are alone in the studio and you're creating, do you think about who your audience is? Always, yes. And maybe, again, that comes from my education and my feminist art education and what CalArts was about, which was about the emphasis was how does art communicate as opposed to maybe what had been taught in the majority of art schools, what does art express, which is different. It isn't that one wins over the other, but there was always this emphasis of what is your work communicating and who is it communicating to? One of the things that I remember uh, having a conversation with the artist, Chris Burden, who is now gone. He passed away several years ago. I remember him telling me, he's, you know, I was much a little bit younger than he was. He was saying, you know, Larry, the best art has a big range. It can, it can reach and congratulate a popular and accept and not demean a popular response. And it also can accept and reach and not demean a highly educated and uncultured response. And I love that whole idea of art having a huge range. And that's what I think about, you know, when I, when I make the work, that the work can be accessed through all sorts of ways from just simply the kind of celebratory nature of the way it looks to people who want to unpack the imagery and see what are the social intentions of the work or why is the work looking this way and what does it say about our social construction. So either way, I think it reaches out. I, I want my work to reach out to as big a range of people as possible. I don't always know who they are or what that might look like, but in the many years of exhibiting my work, I've been able to, I guess, tabulate that it seems to be a really big and wide range of people who respond to the work. So that I'm happy about, just simply from professional experience. So it's not, it doesn't seem to lock somebody out. It's not a gate, it's not a gatekeeper. I've enjoyed our conversation. This is our last question. What do you feel is the purpose of art and, and what is your role? I say this with all honesty. I think by nature, I'm an insecure person. And I, I say that with a certain pride because that means I'm not prone to drinking my own Kool-Aid. And I don't always know who I am or what I'm up to. Even in the face of telling you and all your other questions that I'm driven and focused. So I guess what I'm saying is that my purpose and identity is constantly being searched for. I'm not I'm not always sure what my role is, and I'm not always sure what the role of art is. I think it I can't assume anything about it or about myself. Although it seems that it's something I love to do, and it seems to have connected with people over the years, and that people have vocalized their responses to me 
about the work, either on a personal level or even on a written critical level. So that's what I really hold on to the most, is that kind of ongoing, worked at, continuously changing idea of self, self-worth, role, necessity, meaning, you know, all of the above. Thank you for what you do. Thank you for being an artist. Thank you so much, Larry. Thank you, Phyllis. My pleasure. Take care. Thank you for listening to Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. For additional content, please visit CerebralWomen.com and be sure to follow Cerebral Women on Instagram.